electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it all in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sure. We've only had a few quarterly reports so far in the season, but the ones we have had must be considered knockout blows to the crash-landing recession thesis that's dominated discussion for well over a year now. And that's why the Dow jumped 367 points today, S&P advanced 0.71%, NASDAQ gained 0.76%. Until this earnings season began one week ago, there was a widespread perception that a looming recession was going to destroy the stock market. Now, the prescription went like this. In order to slow down the economy and crush inflation, Fed Chief Jay Powell would have to cause a recession. You couldn't cram down 10 rate hikes in a row, including some very big ones, without the economy falling apart, right? Seems logical. Plus, if there were any doubt that a recession was inevitable, all you had to do was look at the yield curve, which is inverted, meaning longer-term rates are far lower than short rates. Long-term rates lower than short rates. Economic orthodoxy says that's an imminent sign of a recession. And it is, but it's also a sign of a ton of false positives. Everybody figured a severe slowdown, though, was a sure thing. And that's why you always heard about this hard landing, meaning that the economy was like a plane or a train about to crash. Now, it turns out that the orthodoxy is failing. It's true believers right now are wondering because they keep getting it wrong. First, it was housing. When you raise the cost of financing, you depress the cost of a home, or at least we thought so. But there's a severe housing shortage in this country. We might have 5 million homes, excess demand 
5 million homes we need. And that's driven housing prices up 40% in the last five years. We never thought there'd be a housing shortage. Each time the Fed's raised rates, it was supposed to cool the housing market. In reality, it's done next to nothing because so few people want to sell their old homes that they refinance with ultra-low mortgage rates during the depths of the pandemic. The main buyers right now are actually cash buyers. They don't even care about rates because rates are irrelevant to them. Yes, there's so much money sloshing around in residential real estate, although the actual price of a home doesn't show up in the CPI. It reverberates throughout the system, and it's been a huge cause of inflation. Also, a seemingly intractable one. I say seemingly, though, because we did get a rent number recently that indicated that rents have stopped going up, which suggests that maybe there are enough units, at least rentals, around. And that would be godsend for the Fed. Anyway, we know the stocks of the home builders should have been the worst performers out there because of the relentless rate hikes. But they turned out to be among the best performers because of the housing shortage. To add insult to energy, we just got some numbers today that show a downtick in forbearance, a seemingly impossible paradoxical figure, given that rates go higher when we're actually supposed to get a downtick, an uptick in defaults, not a downtick. Higher rates mean more people are supposed to default. We have no people to force from their homes because everybody's paying their mortgages on time. Or, of course, they're paying it in cash and don't have to worry about a mortgage. Then, in another classic contradiction, we have a roaring bull market in the transports, the truckers, the airlines. Now, I don't buy into the yield curve orthodoxy, but I am much more confident in Dow theory orthodoxy, which says you can't have a real bull market unless the Dow transports are confirming it. So it's vital to see the transports hitting new highs like they've done over the last few days. Suffice to say, you're not supposed to get this kind of action at this point in a rate hike cycle. When the Fed tightens, we expect to crush the commerce. And that just hasn't happened. I know that some of this strength has to do with the monster run FedEx in light of a possible strike at a competitor, UPS. But you can't asterisk the transports. You just claim it. Delta Air reported last week it was a clean, beaten race, so don't get caught up in the minutiae. I think you go higher. Now, look, a minor word of caution. Trucker J.B. Hunt reported tonight in missed expectations. So tomorrow could be a tougher day for the group. More bullish data, though. We had a call last week from PepsiCo. More on them later. But they mentioned multiple times that there's been no trade down in price. This is interesting because it's not supposed to happen for 10 rate hikes. You're supposed to have a trade down. The consumer usually won't stand for such increases at this point in the cycle. But PepsiCo Shockley said there's no problem. There's nobody buying that house brand of soda. The real doubts about this recession thesis have been sown by the banks. First, J.P. Morgan reported in Juggernaut Group. Juggernaut, Juggernaut growth a quarter, the strongest quarter I've seen since Pierpont Morgan managed the place in what we call the corner, which is right down there. I kid you not. J.P. Morgan's become the savior of the financial system again, just like it was in the early 1900s when it was the lender of last resort during panics. Similar back then, they also make a lot of money when they save the day. This time it was with First Republic. J.P. Morgan's already killing it with that franchise that was filled with millionaires that collapsed during the mini crisis earlier this spring. They only bought this thing for what will end up looking like, I think, pennies on the dollar. Then we got a report from Wells Fargo, same day, that was just stellar. The company's making a huge amount of money risk-free with its monster net interest margin. 10%, we thought, no, it turned out to go on to 14 Now, given the mini-crisis in banking, there was bleed-off of many institutions, but not Wells. Because of previous sanctions, it wasn't allowed to be as free with its capital as other banks. So Wells was flush with cash, allowing them to crush it. Plus, remember the big commercial real estate crisis? Wells analyzed every one of its office buildings and came away pretty sanguine. And I trust Wells. I trust Charlie Sharp, the CEO. 
Sure, the regionals, which we're all up today, may have been deposit donors to these big banks. We don't know yet. But the begin- you know, I'm beginning to just wonder whether they're even dangerous. Now, we knew that there had to be another shoe that was going to fall in the bank mini crisis, and that was supposed to be Schwab which has a banking business on top of its famous brokerage business. Supposedly, the bank's bond holdings were very dangerous. I kept insisting this was an absurd worry. As the company itself was never in doubt, there was no online banking crisis. Sure enough, the short sellers were all over it. The brokerage business meant nothing to them. Betting this little bank appendage to the brokerage will lead to a real run on the story firm. Huh, no. Not only was there no run, but Schwab's brokerage business, the online business, showed massive inflows. I think the $66 stock, even though it's up 12% today, can go still higher. That's how low this one had fallen. That's how great this franchise is. Today, the largest commercial bank in the country, Bank of America, reported a magnificent quarter, making it clear that the consumer is incredibly strong and flush with cash. If the bears were right about the inevitable recession, it'd be the opposite. A strapped consumer, out of cash, hanging on by her fingertips, default are minimal, including defaults in the dreaded commercial real estate space, which I keep telling you was a well overdone crisis. Not to be outdone, Morgan Stanley's proven that its new Model 1 of asset gathering has made it immune of whatever the bears lay out because it's taken about $200 billion in year to date. This investment bank made an immense amount of money without much of an IPO market or even an M&A market. Morgan Stanley even mentioned that things are getting better on both fronts. As CFO Sharon Yeshaya said, and I quote, across investment at client activity t- trended positively as the quarter progressed. The pre-announced M&A backlog grew consistently throughout the quarter with a potential plateau in rates and lower implied volatility client dialogue is currently active, end quote. You know what that's called? That's called a great cadence. And that's what sent this charitable trust name roaring 6.5% higher. The bottom line here, those who cling to the notion that we're about to enter a recession must find all these examples daunting, if not depressing. But earnings season has shown the recession thesis just doesn't hold up under close scrutiny, even if so many so-called experts tell us otherwise. Lori in Massachusetts. Lori. Yes. Kramer, hi. This hi, Lori. Lori from Lynn in Boston. How are you? I am good. How about you, Lori? What's up? Okay, so my question is today about Carvana. And um, so I bought some today at 39 towards the close. And then after hours, I've seen it trading at 35. So I bought more okay. after hours. Uh, let me tell you what I think. First of all, we don't know. We don't know what's happening. Why? Because Carvana said it's going to move up its earnings till tomorrow. That's far in advance of when we thought. And what people are saying, well, it must be bad. I say, I don't know. Sometimes, Lori, the best words in the language for stocks is, I don't know. And this is one of those. How about James in South Dakota? James. James, you're with me? James. Oh, Anthony. Anthony. I'm sorry. It's Anthony. I'm sorry. My yeah. bad. What's going on? Uh, actually, I'm, uh, I'm, I own uh, Mike, uh, Micron, and I'm, I'm worried that they're being left behind by all the other uh, semiconductors, to be honest with you. Well, I got to uh, tell you, you know, having, the way this having, is one, let me tell you the way this one works, Anthony. 
Micron bottoms well in advance of when its business is good. Uh, Sanjay Marotra has made a point, the CEO, to me over and over again, we're not at the bottom yet. But you have to anticipate the bottom. That's the way Micron works. And it's $64.94. I say you are okay. But be prepared to buy more stock at 60. Now, the tide is turning in favor of the bulls. And the bears out there still clinging to the recession thesis. They are running out of ammo. On Man Money tonight, we're at continuing our series on the enterprise software space stocks that you never, ever see yourself, but are making a ton of money. And they are second-tier winners who continue to thrive in this red-hot cohort. Hey, one of them, I think, is going much higher, much, much higher. Then we've entered an earnings season with a fairly confusing backdrop for the broader market. So what can investors expect from the major averages as we get inundated with more reports? I'm going off the charts to find out, and it's pretty interesting and different from what I thought. And Splunk didn't quite make our list of enterprise software comeback stocks. But bouncing off its lows, story's still intriguing. Great CEO. I'm checking in with the company's top brands. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. A 
as I've been saying all week, we're running a series of the cloud comeback stocks that have quietly become one of the hottest groups in this market. Even if most people only want to gawk at the Magnificent Seven. Last night, I highlighted the four best performers in the cloud software cohort since the bottom last fall. Tonight, I want to walk you through the fifth through eighth biggest winners here because we can't ignore some spectacular rallies. You need to know these stocks. Even the eighth best performing cloud stock is more than double from its lows. Let's take them one by one. And you're going to hear of some of them before because we had some of them on, but I want to repeat them. I need you to know them. We're going to start with the fifth strongest cloud name, and it's called Confluent. Remember them? We actually covered this one last month. And it's so hard to wait for a pullback. But after speaking to CEO Jay Krebs, a really impressive guy, I found it a lot harder to stay patient because he told a terrific story about Confluent's role in the data ecosystem. Lately, any software co- a company that can help its customers organize, analyze, or store data has been thriving because you need mounds of data to train these generative AI platforms. Confluent's data infrastructure platform enables what they call data streaming which is a great leap forward from old-fashioned database storage and query models. I won't claim to be an expert in information technology, but when I look at Confluent's growing roster of blue-chip customers, and it's like everybody, I am a believer. Wall Street clearly agrees, which is why the stock's up now 128% from its lows. But this is good. It's still down more than 60% from the peak in late 2021. When I say it's good, it means that there's still probably more move here. But like with all cloud comeback plays I mentioned yesterday, the real key here is that after spending like a drunken sailor in the old days, Confluent finally got that religion I keep talking about on pursuing profitability. Now, they're not quite break even yet, but the analysts expect them to turn a profit by the fourth quarter. If management can truly pull that off, and I looked at management in the eye and think they can, and if they can keep delivering big earnings and cash flow growth next year, I think the stock will have more upside, maybe a lot more. I really like Confluent. If you can ask people in this industry, if there any friends in the industry, ask them about Confluent. All right, now, how about the fifth best performer from the enterprise software space? It's a company called Asana, which is another workplace productivity platform. Remember, these are all enterprise, not consumer-facing, with the stock up 109% from its lows. That said, Asana is still off 84% from its peak in November 2021. This thing plunged from 145 at its highs all the way down to 11 as it, as it lows sell, 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 sell. in January. Even though it's come roaring back this year, it's still only at 23 and change. So that's a nice double. But look at how much upside there might be. Kaylee Asana is not one of my favorites, though. Because while the company's taking steps toward profitability, it's still not there yet. And, and it's not even expected to reach break-even profitability or positive free cash flow until 2025. That's not my cup of tea. I also haven't yet heard a convincing argument why Asana's project management software could be considered essential. Sure, the company's improving, but you could say that about a dozen, dozens of cloud names that are up huge from the bottom. So Asada, it does fit the numbers, but it doesn't fit me. Next up, there's another one that I'm a little confused by. It's called Appfolio, which is more of an industry-specific maker of software for residential property owners, landlord software. But it's the Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing ETF, and the stock's up 109% from its lows last fall. So it meets our criteria of why we're doing these different stocks. Unlike the rest of the cloud comeback, Appfolio stock has actually surpassed its previous peak. It made a new all-time high just yesterday. Now, this is a real weird situation when the previous CEO, Jason Randall, resigned suddenly in March. Ever since then, the stock's caught fire. 
Interesting, huh? In any case, Appfolio is another name that I wave you away from because while there's some slight year-over-year improvement for projected for 2023, the company's still deeply unprofitable. They're expected to lose $1.86 per share this year. Cash flow is moving in the right direction, but still barely positive. Tough to justify the stock's nearly $7 billion valuation. However, I feel a lot better about the eighth strongest cloud comeback stock. That's called GitLab, and that's G-I-T-L-A-B. This one's a little weird because it's only bottomed a few months ago, and it's already more than doubled off uh, off its lows, even as it remains down more than 60% from its 2021 highs. Boy, these stocks are down so much. Those were set just weeks after the company came public. Hey, why do I like GitLab? All right, its platform helps engineers and developers to create secure and operate their own software. Now, this you might have heard something, and this is another term that comes up constantly. I'm going to spend a lot of time. It's called DevOps, D-E-V-O-P-S, before which uh, are, are teams within an organization that combine software developers and operations personnel. GitLab calls itself a DevSecOps platform, adding security to the mix. When you read through all these different analyst reports, they always call it that. However, here's what you really need to know. Their platform helps businesses create software more easily and more quickly, including through the use of open source repositories. And then it also assists in managing software once it's been deployed in the field. GitLab's top competitor is the similarly named GitHub, which was acquired by Microsoft five years ago for for $7.5 billion. That's tough because developers can use GitHub more seamlessly with other ubiquitous Microsoft tools. But we've also seen Microsoft's acquisition of GitHub described as a positive for GitLab the one we're focused on, because it's validated the business model. Now, how has the stock run so much over the past two and a half months? Well, first, there's a gra- gradual been a, uh, let's say there's been a broader recognition that GitLab software is incredibly useful in the world of generative AI. Remember, one of the big names, uh, one of the big areas here where generative AI does something valuable is software development. That's less sophisticated coders. It can describe what they want from a new software tool in plain English. You just talk to the thing. And then the AI can do the nitty-gritty of of actually writing code, which is usually pretty sophisticated to do. The bulls on GitLab believe they can introduce AI to their platform to further speed up the software development process, although obviously Microsoft's GitHub is going to be way ahead of them on anything AI-related because Microsoft has that edge on AI. Now, the second positive here is that GitLab's financials have improved dramatically. In early June, the company reported a smaller-than-expected loss. Management raised their full-year forecast. They still expect to lose money this year, but it'll be a smaller loss than previously anticipated. And if you believe the analysts, GitLab could have positive earnings and positive free cash flow for the first time ever in the fourth quarter. Hey, look, if they can really pull that off, the stock's going to keep running. Look, these cloud software stocks have been able to roar mainly thanks to the Wall Street fashion show. Money managers are less worried about inflation right now. They're less worried about the Fed right now. So they find growth stocks that are much more appetizing than they were just a year ago. Uh, and, and I'm not sure about this, but at the same time, many of these cloud names have also worked hard to control their spending and focus on profitability. That's what I'm sure about, which is still the thing that Wall Street likes most. These companies are much better than they used to be. And I'm looking for companies, remember, that are showing profitability now, even though the ones I've given you don't necessarily fit that criteria. You may like them, though. Here's the bottom line. I know that Magnificent Seven are a lot easier to get your head around because they're all consumer-facing. They're making a ton of money. But we can't possibly ignore the monster moves in these cloud stocks that I've been talking about, especially when so many of them might actually be worth owning. For tonight's batch, I really like this GitLab, but I got to tell you, it's Confluent that I think is going to be the big winner. Stay tuned to Confluent. 
And also stay tuned for the rest of the week because I've got tons of ideas about this newly red hot group. The takeaway tonight, Confluent. Bad money's back out to the bank. Coming up, the Chartist sees a few molehills to watch for on the averages. Could the retail investor be what pulls the toboggan over the mountain? Stick with Kramer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. As earnings season gets rolling, how do we get our bearings in a truly confusing market? On the one hand, much of the economy is a lot better than has any right to be at this point in the Fed tightening cycle. On the other hand, stocks have already roared from the lows last fall. I think there are lots of reasons to feel constructive about the economy, but also lots of reasons to worry that the Fed may keep raising interest rates more than Wall Street wants in order to fully stamp out inflation. Most of the CEOs I speak to fear that. At times like these, I like to put my subjective assessments aside, take the emotions out of a more, and let's just do a more quantitative approach for heaven's sake. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Jessica Inskin. Oh, she's a brilliant technician. She was the first woman on the active trader desk of Fidelity before becoming the director of advanced trader strategy at Merrill Self Direct. And now she's the director of product and education at Options Play, as well as being a co-host of the new Market Make Her Podcast, which is a financial literacy program aimed at women. A little over a month ago, she told us this market had a lot more upside. That turned out to be dead right. That's why I had to go back to her. And right now, Inskip expects an overall strong earnings season, but she still sees vulnerabilities ahead for the stock market. In her view, the S&P 500 is likely to rally about 82 points from here to 4,637, where it peaked on March 29th of last year, at which point she thinks, well, this move could run out of steam. I found that surprising. I had to bring it to you. But how about the NASDAQ 100? That's a tech-heavy index that's been leading the charts all year, especially since the spring. Everybody complains that this has been a narrow rally led by barely more than a handful of big tech stocks, which is all the more reason to watch the NASDAQ 100. Because what happens if the Magnificent Seven finally do falter? I got an idea. Let's take a look at the weekly chart. Right now, Inskip points out that the NASDAQ 100 is hitting a major ceiling of resistance. Okay? And the way you can tell that is because look at that, right? You may see resistance going back to the second to last peak in 2021 before the whole tech complex rolled over and the first lower high we got in the spring of 2022. In fact, with a combined 276-point gain for the NASDAQ 100 over the past two days, we popped up above the high end of the range. But given that this is a weekly chart, what matters is where we close on Friday. 
She says this is an area where we tend to get flooded with tons of new supply as tech investors take profits, something that overwhelms the demand and only pushes the price slower. Remember, this is a market, and if supply comes in heavier than the demand, things go down in price. Plus, there's a shark in the water, and it's called rebalancing. The people who run the index want to make it so the magnificent seven and similarly huge companies have less weight, room for others. Inskip says that will incur a uh, that will spur a, a, a lot of artificial selling, creating even more downward pressure on the NASDAQ 100 and its best components. I question whether this isn't already factored into the market, but I'm, I'm listening to Inskip here. Why is she so worried about this resistance area? Because Inskip thinks it's an inflection point. Right now, the NASDAQ 100 is caught between the level where it first made a lower high when the tech bear market went into full force last year, and then on the higher end, it's right underneath the level where it peaked in the second to last higher high of the 2021 bull market. See, you know, she's just trying to describe that versus here, right? Of course, if the index can hold on to the past two gains, two, the last two days, which I told you was very, very strong, and give us a weekly close above that hurdle, then Inskip says the next major hurdle doesn't come up until 16764, which is pretty high. This would be a great gain, okay? That's 900 points from here. But if the NASDAQ 100 can't break out the upside, she's worried that the true floor might be down roughly 1,500 to 2,000 points. That could be just horrible. Now, how about the S&P 500? Given all the hand-wringing about how this market's narrow breath, something that definitely wasn't a, a problem today, let's take a look at a weekly chart of the S&P 500. Now, this is presented as an equal weight index. This is like the regular S&P, except very every component is weighed the same. Means the mega cap companies have a lot less impact. Shows you the true breadth of the market. Inskip notes that when you look at the S&P Equal Weight Index, this rally is clearly a lot broader than it's given credit. Remember, equal weight, every stock said, said be equal. Microsoft is equal to a small cap. Right now, she points out that the S&P Equal Weight is running up against a ceiling of resistance that extends to the lower high we made in, la- in August of last year. Now, like the NASDAQ 100, though, she thinks it's at an inflection point. This is an inflection point that turned to be very positive for the regular S&P 500 when it broke through le- these levels last earnings season. As income sees it, we're basically heading sideways here, albeit with the S&P equal weight making lower lows, something that's still, she says, a bullish setup. And that would mean for the vast majority of stocks. How about the weekly chart of the normal market cap weighted S&P, the one that we always talk about? Right now, Inskip says the S&P has a floor of support around 4,312. Okay. That's down more than 200 points from here. That represents both the 61.8% retracement, key number, of last year's decline, and also lines up with the S&P made a higher high in the spring of last year. On the other hand, Inskip thinks of a ceiling of resistance around 5335. Uh, okay, five, four, five, three, five. That's another level. We actually broke, I don't want to get you this, but we actually broke through this level today. If the S&P can stay above this line, through the week, this will be a much more bullish chart. So that's, if you ask me of all the takeaways, we have to stay above this number in order for her to feel more confident. Even if we don't hold here, though, Inskip expects an eventual upside breakout by next week or the week after. She'd be more confident about next week. But that's when the NASDAQ rebalancing happens, and she's worried about that being a drag on the market. If we stay above the key resistance level I just showed you, Inskip thinks the S&P can work its way back to its highs from late March of last year. 
around 4637. Now it's up 82 points from here. Again, major move, okay? Here's the bottom line. The charts is interpreted by Jess Ginskip, who's been red hot, suggests that the big, broad S&P 500 can probably keep working its way higher, although this is a very tricky moment. She's much more concerned about that NASDAQ 100, which is about to be hit with that big rebalancing that we keep talking about that has negative consequences, while its chart is clearly at an inflection point. Real possibility we inflect in the wrong direction. In short, we always have to be careful during earnings season, but this time you should proceed with even more caution than usual. And remember, this is from a bull who gave us and called right a very good move the last time we spoke to her. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Joe in Michigan. Joe. Yeah, it's Joe in Michigan. I have ExxonMobil stock is down 15% from 52-week high. I get a 6% return on that because I bought it at $60 cost basis. Now the stock is about 101. Should I hold or sell? And what stock is this? I'm I'm sorry. ExxonMobil. Oh, I want you to hold Exxon. I love this deal they're doing with Denbury. They're going to be the number one in carbon capture. I think that there's going to be a lot of people who are drawn to an oil company. That is, it's a storied oil company that actually is doing the most of any oil company to make it so the environment's better. I know you might think that that's not what's going to drive the stock. I think it will. I think you should buy it. Let's go to Nancy in Virginia. Nancy. Hi, Jim. This is Nancy. And I am an investment club member and a long time listening to you. Thank you, Nancy. Radio in the early 90s. Oh, my God. I've been around. What's going on? <laughs> Thank you for everything you and uh, your you're team do. Welcome. That's a great team. Thank you. My question is to you regarding Airbnb. I am currently sitting on a 32 a share profit in the stock. I am starting to feel a bit piggish and wondering if I should ring the register. Okay, I'm going to say no to that, Nancy. I did a lot of work on Airbnb just last night because I want to do a piece on it. And first of all, thank you for being a member of the club. Uh, and my feeling is I did want to buy this. was in our bullpen one time. I wanted to buy it very badly for the club. I think it's not done. I think the move is real. I think that it should be up every bit as big as Marriott, if not more. That's my compare. All right, the charge is interpreted by the once incredibly bullish Jessica Inskin. Suggest the S&P 500 could keep grinding higher from here, while the Nasdaq 100 is at an inflection point. In both cases, it's best to be cautious, though, especially as earnings season gets underway. I am a tad more bullish, but I understand. Hey, much more made money, including my schools with Splunk. Could this enterprise software play be a slam dunk for your portfolio, or does it have so much competition that it can't make a, a heads or tails of the situation? I'm getting the latest from the CEO. Then the other day, we got a downgrade from PepsiCo. What is that? I think the story is better than the analyst does, and I don't like this kind of downgrade. And then, of course, all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. day this week, we're highlighting the biggest winners in the enterprise software space because these stocks just had insane moves off the bottom. But right now, I want to talk about a company that didn't quite make the list despite having a real nice run off its lows. And that company is Splunk. This is a software outfit that collects uh, data, analyzes machine-generated data in order to prevent security breaches or application performance issues. 
It's kind of been lost in the wilderness for years on its previous management. It's turned around since they brought in some cybersecurity veteran Gary Steele as their new CEO. He's money. Ever since the bottom last October, the stock's rallied 68%, quitting a 14% gain since we last spoke to Steele in late May. Now, this week, Splunk's hosting its very exciting annual user conference in Las Vegas, where they made a slew of announcements about new products and, i got to tell you, some really special customers. I want to make sure you're up to speed. So let's take a close look with Gary Steele, the president and CEO of Splunk, to learn more. Hey, Gary, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks so much, Jeff. Great to be here. I got to tell you, Gary, this this uh, Conf 23 sounded like you made some uh, really some major news. And I want pe- people at home to try to understand you have this great stuff that you're doing for Carnival, a company that we have followed endlessly. And I just think that might be a good opening for you to be able to say some of the great things that Splunk does. Yeah, I mean, for Carnival, we're basically helping them drive their digital resilience. So all of their passengers on their cruises have an amazing experience. So it's everything from all of those customer facing applications to ensuring that they're always secure and they don't have cyber related issues. So it's been a great partnership with Carnival. Now, I also think that, I mean, geez, the list that you gave us is extraordinary. But you do work with one of the most controversial companies right now because they're doing a major reorganization, and that is FedEx, which I happen to love the CEO, and they've done incredible things. How are you helping FedEx grow right now? You know, it's really interesting. Um, Their CTO joined us on stage here at our user conference, and they told the story about how much of Splunk underpins those systems to ensure that they're up and running, both from a cyber point of view, but also making sure that those applications always are up and running. Now, that's very important, obviously, because they're like a 24-7, and they're also competitive against UPS. So what would you do? Find out that something isn't delivered properly or just find out that there aren't deliveries? It's really about ensuring that um, they're well secured, so giving them visibility across their cyber environment, as well as helping them ensure that those applications are all up and running. All of that information about those applications flows through Splunk. Now, you put on a very good case for both internal and external use of AI. Now, Gary, a lot of people come on and said they've talked about AI. I've known you long enough that if you tell me you are doing serious work in AI, I want to know what you're doing in it. You got it. So here here at our conference, we announced Splunk AI, which was a set of new capabilities, things like being able to generate our native language that allows you to use our product much easier and then help give the users recommendations as to what to do next. So we're really focused on how do we simplify users of Splunk, what their environment looks like and how do we make their day more productive? And we're really excited about that potential. Well, we're very big believers in Microsoft's Azure. We've seen this thing grow. It's kind of amazing. You've now got a hookup with them. I think it's very important for your business. No, we are very excited to be here at the conference announcing a partnership with Microsoft to deliver Splunk um, in Azure as a service. And effectively, immediately, our um, customers that want to use their Microsoft Azure credits, they can do so. So super excited about the partnership. We think it'll bring great value to all of our users. I know that sometimes I just got to understand when I don't understand something. You seem very proud of your Splunk Edge hub. So I got to give you the the, uh, the mic on that one because I don't really quite fairly understand why it's important, but it obviously is to you. No, so Edge Hub is a very cool capability that allows us to take information out of manufacturing environments. So think factory floor, shop floor, machine rooms, where it's traditionally been hard to get visibility from those environments and bring that into your IT environment. 
So you basically can stream data out of those environments directly into Splunk to make decisions about what's really happening. Now we're doing this through a small device that lives in those environments. It comes with a whole bunch of sensors. It's a very cool way for us to help drive our software business. Now, that is something that I know Jensen Wong from, uh, from NVIDIA told me would happen, that there would be this, if people would adopt it for Internet of Things to be able to conquer an issue of waste that has to be conquered before the factory is open. So you're involved with that too? We really want to help people bring that whole manufacturing environment into the fold where they have the visibility that they have in IT. And we think this is super powerful for our customers. Yeah, you, have, you were named co-chair of the Aspen Cyber Group, uh, which talks more about uh, what we can do to protect. I mean, it's a government group. How, they, how endangered are we really, Gary? I am seeing everybody being hacked, and it's really, I mean, everybody in the government being hacked. And we know we have active enemies, really active enemies right now. 100%. And I think in this very interesting geopolitical time. It is extremely important that we cooperate across the industry and that there's public-private partnerships between private companies, public companies, and the U.S. government. And so I'm thrilled to um, be co-chair and to help drive a lot of these discussions that I think can lead to some real material results. So super excited about it. Now, I had felt that for a while Splunk was really kind of out there, not part of the firmament. I think you've brought it into the firmament. How do you feel now that you've gotten more than just your feet wet at the organization about what Splunk can offer customers? No, I'm super excited. It's been 15 months for me. I feel like we've made tremendous progress in a really short period of time. Uh, being here to our user conference it just reiterates for me the passion that people have for Spunk and the value that we can deliver. And as you know, Jim, we're very much focused on also de- delivering efficiency across the company, which as we put up results, I think has made a real difference. Well, I know you have, and I tell you, I've been betting on this one ever since you got there. I want to thank Gary, Gary Steele, who is the president and CEO of Splunk off of his big user conference. Mad Money's back in. Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Today, calls one of those. Tell me about what you've been speaking about. The calls are being on the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Because I'm going to start with. Michael in Tennessee. Michael. Booyah, Ski Daddy. This Booyah. is Michael from National Heart doing today. What's happening? I am a long-time listener, first-time caller. I would Excellent. love to hear your thoughts on a long-term hold for a stock, ASTS Space Mobile. Thanks Jimmy for Chill is not going to fall prey to that idea that we, that bad stock is going to be better long-term. I don't want you to touch that. I like better companies, including one that reports soon, and that's Tesla. How about Joseph and watching Joseph? Booyah. I think Booyah. Alexandria Real, Real Estate, which owns okay. life science built buildings, uh, has been unjustly dragged down by the broader office suite sector. Trading about 13 times FFO, management just hiked the dividend. Jim, do you think the risk-reward on Alexandria Real Estate sounds attractive? Alexandria Real Estate is one of the better of the real estate investment trusts, but I would rather see you in federal realty, FRT, which I think does a very better job. And I think Tom Wood is the man. Let's go to Tom in Ohio. Tom. Hello. Tom. Yes. Kramer, go Tom ahead. from Cincinnati. Bring it. Bring it, Tom. Longtime club member, 
Excellent. Viewer, Centene Corporation. Buy, Okay, okay, Centene. Ever since the late Michael Nidorf passed away, I have not been as involved or like Centene. I think he was the driving forces behind Centene. He's now gone. He was a great man. Uh, we own Humana for our Chapel Trust, and that's the one that I'm sticking with, even though it's not been that great because of high medical loss ratio that everyone's so worried about. Let's go to Tyler in California. Tyler. Hey, Big Booyah from California. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. How about you, Tyler? I'm doing good. Thank you. I, I think I found an undiscovered gem that has the backing of Warren Buffett and deals with cloud technology for small and medium businesses. What do you think is Stone, S-T-N-E? I think it's okay. I mean, I've been doing a series of very good zit stocks on my my. It's called my my enterprise software uh, show. We're doing four, we're doing a whole bunch of them. Any one of my enterprise software segments is better than yours. I'm sorry, but I got to be blunt about it. Let's go to Jim in Michigan. Jim. Hey, Big Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well. What's going on? Hey, in early 2009, we had a tough economy. I brought you Insight Pharmaceutical down at $3. I said this was a great buy, had spectacular things going on. And the stock went from $3 over to $100 a share. So I have some good speculative plays. I like Insight. Should I be buying more back into it? Look, look, you brought it. I think it's a good company. It's been on a real bad downturn. But I do think that that's the kind of speculative company that is working right now, and it doesn't lose money, so I'm okay with it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is Pepsi the right call for this generation? Find out why a recent downgrade has Kramer too busy to be fizzy. Next. day, PepsiCo, one of the best of the packaged food companies there is, I mean, maybe the best, caught a downgrade from a very solid analyst who said, and I kind of paraphrase his reasoning, this is about as good as it gets. The story fully reflects everything can go right for Pepsi and the stock's price for perfection. Now, I hate this kind of call, and I'm going to tell you why. First, everybody stays the same, the input cost of growth rates and consumer habits. Then this analyst may exactly, he, he may be right. I know that when the consumer staples begin to reflect a lot of positives, the price earnings multiples tend to get too high for comfort. PepsiCo's stock now sells at 23 times next year's earnings, and I admit that feels a bit nosebleedish. But will everything really stay the same? Is this truly as good as it gets? I find that very hard to believe because PepsiCo's management is so good, so clever, and so competitive that I just can't see them being totally hostage to the business cycle or the cost of labor, even the stay-at-home snack habits. When I first met CEO Raymond LaGuardia, PepsiCo had a solid 4% growth rate and spent a lot of money on buyback. He told me that he thought he could get the PepsiCo growth engine to 5%, in part by spending to get that growth. I chided him as a dreamer. How could he possibly best the 4% growth that the company seems stretched to accomplish? He told me, just you wait. And you know what? He didn't do just 5%. This quarter, he did 10%, raising the growth rate from 8% that had been the forecast. Now, I know you're going to say, well, a lot of that's coming from price increases, something PepsiCo can't get away with anymore. If anything, prices must be rolled back as inflation cools. To which I say, how do you know? 
Frito-Lay's kicking butt around the globe, not just at home anymore. Pepsi's taking share like it's never done before. I actually expect its world cost to go down, its pricing to kind of even creep a bit up, given the lack of trade down effect that they told me. Why not? This is no longer the old Pepsi or Frito-Lay. The company's done a remarkable job building brand equity. It's no longer a prosaic buyback machine. It's a machine that pours money into global growth markets. Why should we assume that's over? PepsiCo hasn't even taken on the, the tough medicine yet and thinned out the disappointments of the portfolio. Well, I think the downgrading analyst doesn't realize. Here's what he doesn't realize. Raymond LaGuardia is a fantastic manager who is doing amazing things with Pepsi and Frito-Lay that even the bulls like me never thought possible. I can only imagine what will happen when he turns his attention to the chronic underperformer that is Quaker or the underachiever that is Gatorade, especially when it might be able to engineer a takeover of Celsius. That's the, <laughs> wow, that's the hottest drink in the universe. PepsiCo put an 8.5% stake in it for just $75 per share. Do you know what Celsius now is almost double that? What's incredible is that when PepsiCo invested in this newfound energy, there were really almost no believers. Except for me. I had them one. I liked them. A lot of people thought the story couldn't possibly get better back then, too. They were dead wrong. Wall Street's riddled with top callers from big-time strategists who predicted a collapse over and over and over because of the inverted yield curve to tech analysts who've endlessly insisted that Apple has no more growth engines to money managers who called NVIDIA just another checkbox AI play, even though they didn't even have a clue that CEO Jensen Wong was really up to some great stuff. Sure, there are tops. We saw a huge one in Intel. We saw plenty of tops in the banks in 2008. We saw tons of tech tops in 2021, something that's happened repeatedly in the course of my career. Those of us who've been around long enough still marvel that digital equipment isn't the dominant tech company. And we've seen food companies fall by the wayside. Remember when Hain traded at 70? It's now at 12 and change. But I say when you call a top or say something's as good as it get, you better know something meaningful about management. Maybe great leaders retiring. Maybe something's going terribly wrong and nobody else sees it. Without those, I think the as good as it gets call is a very risky call to make when a company's got great management at the helm, like the management at PepsiCo. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'd find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.